JT at Virgin Hotels Las Vegas, our inaugural podcast series. I want to begin by thanking everyone behind the scenes at Virgin Hotels for this opportunity to host what will be the first of hopefully many podcasts with some of the biggest game changers, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and impact players in Las Vegas history. And as we sit here in the lobby on a beautiful day where it rained last night, which is pretty amazing, it's July 29th on a Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific time, and I welcome in to begin one of my really great long-term friends here in Vegas, former NFL wide receiver, Southern Nevada Sports Hall of Famer, the pride of Rancho High School, the great Mike Pritchard. How are you, Mike? JT, I am honored to be here with you today. This is fabulous. I, I love this property. I love being on the air with you as well. So uh, I could not be happier right now. Thanks so much. And I want to begin when you're when before you decided to play and become a big athlete in grammar school and middle school and high school. What was this part of town like? You're a Vegas resident. Right, right. You always hear these stories about the town ended at Rainbow mm-hmm. and it didn't go this way or that <laughs> way. Take me back to your early youth when your folks, your dad especially, would get you in the car and take you around Vegas. I remember when the town ended at Jones. <laughs> Not right. so much Rainbow, but uh, no, it's, it's, it's so different now. Growing up here, uh, we had about 200,000 people. We were a town. You know, you hear that expression a lot of times, Vegas the town, but it's a city now. Uh, but we were a town. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, we had about nine high schools, and if if you went to school with somebody, you knew somebody that knew somebody at another school, or you, you probably bumped into them at a, at a function or a house party or something like that. But uh, out this way, it was just UNLV. Uh, it wasn't even this large of a campus either. So uh, you got to think about uh, what this was back then, like one street, uh, one-way road. Harmon was just a, a two-lane highway, not even wow. a highway, just a road. Uh, so it's turned into a spectacular avenue. Uh, through the Vega, through Vegas right now, it's one of the main veins, really a main artery uh, that we have in this city right now. When you think about what's going to happen in the future with F1 and uh, certainly Top Golf too, so this property, I believe Virgin is situated perfectly, uh, and UNLV's campus too just continues to grow as well. How did you dream as a little boy about sports? What was that? Okay. Again, I know your family background; mm-hmm. we've been friends a long time, but. When was the first time you can remember being a young boy, grabbing a football, playing baseball and other sports, running track, and thinking, man, I love sports and maybe I can do something with this? You know what? It, it never really dawned on me that I was going to be a professional athlete, though. I was playing sports, JT, for the love of it. I mean, I was playing baseball, football. I was bowling. Uh, I played a little basketball, but you know, basketball wasn't, wasn't agreeing with me. How about that, right? Uh, so I gravitated towards baseball and football, and I would be able to play catch with my dad. Uh, my first uh, big memory of, of, as a child, he took me. We had a lot of relatives up in Milwaukee, uh, and so he took me to a Brewers game way back in the day when Robert Young. County oh, Stadium. Oh, yes. You remember that, right? Yeah, County Stadium yep, back yep. in the day. So, wow. uh, yep. So I, I just loved baseball. And then watching my brother, my brother's seven years older than me, watching him play football. Uh, whetted my appetite there. So here I am, seven years old, and he's 14, and he's playing with his friends in, in, the, in the park. And I'm like, I want to play. I want to play. You're too small. We'll, we'll hurt you. I'm like, no, no. So I kept bugging them. And it's all right. We're not going to take it easy on you. I'm like, don't, don't. So I got out there, and I got the ball in my hands, JT, and I outran everybody. And then finally it turned into my brother saying, you know what? Let's get the ball to my, my brother and then we'll, we'll block for him. So 
that for me gave me the confidence that I needed to do what I ultimately ended up doing, right, playing professional football. But uh, it, it was never a dream. Uh, I staggered into it. Uh, I stumbled into it, but, uh, you know, the rest is history. I, I could not be happier with how it turned out. I want to stay more on your brother and the impact yeah. that he had because you always think of big brother teasing little brother, holding him back, and then all of a sudden little brother has this moment. And it sounds like you just shared one of it, but when you looked up to him, what, what was his attributes that you looked up to your brother and said, I wanted to be like him? Well, you know, he was always humbled. I mean, great athlete. And, and one of the things that he uh, went through was my dad being in the military – traveled around a lot so he traveled between his junior and senior year and didn't really get a shot at a college and and so he ended up joining the military which was fine that's what he wanted to do uh but i I saw the humility that he had uh jt and i also saw the athleticism that he had and i wanted to be like that uh he was fast he was he's he's a little bit bigger than me he's about six two uh, and, you know, I stopped at six feet, but uh, he was one of those just a gifted athlete, played all sports, basketball, baseball, and football, uh, and that was the guy I looked up to. Mike Pritchard is our guest. We are here at Virgin. We are here for our inaugural podcast. I'm thrilled that Mike is my first guest here. So as we talk about the early years in Rancho, mm-hmm. when did it click? So when was it sophomore, junior year? When did you know that you had a chance to even play there? and have that celebrated career before college. Well, it's an interesting story because, uh, you know, you play Pop Warner football in the city uh, and you have connections, right? And so I'm coming from junior high school to high school, and I'm thinking, JT, that the first day of high school is when you go out for football. But it wasn't. They actually had training camp, right? So I go out there first day of high school, first day of school, I walk out to the JV field, and I'm like, hey, can I go out for football? And the coach is like, what do you mean? Like, I want to go out for the football team. He's like, well, we have our football team. We had camp already. I'm like, I didn't know about it. I didn't know that you had camp, you know, a few weeks ago. Can I try out now? He's like, no, you know, we're fine. I'm like, you mean I got to sit out a year? And he's like, yeah, you got to sit out a year and go out next year. So my freshman year, I sat out a year. But that year, JT, I watched Randall Cunningham at UNLV. And I watched our high school football team, and, and I, just, I just took it all in. I let me, fo- let me in. follow up. What is the message to the parents who are listening when you think about the calendar and when you should right. know? Because I know there's a lot of parents who have no idea when right. to sign up for Youth Little League and to do all that. What was that takeaway moment for you where, you, where your, eyeball, your, your light bulb went off and you said parents need to understand the calendar? Sure, absolutely. I, I had no idea that you needed to go out for training camp prior to the school year. Yeah. Uh, and so that was an eye-opener. And, you know, that I, I wouldn't blame anybody for that. It, you know, I don't know how you know that, to be honest with you. No, I'm, I'm loving the fact that you're blaming yourself. I you am blaming myself. Know. I just didn't know. But, but – uh, certainly the next year, after I took it all in, watching Randall Cunningham at UNLV do his thing and, and, and watching Rancho and, and you know, Gorman with uh, Blake Ezor and all these great players, and I'm like, okay, I know I want to do that, though. I know I now want to participate. So it came back the next summer, my sophomore year. I found out when the date was. I tried out. And it took about two games before they moved me up to varsity. <laughs> that quick. That quick. Do you remember how hungry you were back in the day? Like, what were those nights where you couldn't play and you said, man, I have to wait till next year? Was it like a clock in your mind counting down? It was. It was. And believe it or not, JT, that was so influential for me and my drive. And I got another story I'll tell you in a minute about 
it, something similar happened to me again that way that just fed it even more, my drive. But, uh, no, it, it, was, it was just the excitement of it, the passion developed, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So what was the breakout game at Rancho where everybody in town heard the name Mike Pritchett for the first time? Oh, well, it was my sophomore year, and I believe Greg Anthony was a quarterback, and uh, I scored the winning touchdown against our rival school, uh, El Dorado, uh, back in the day. And here I am, a little freshman, and I'm scoring a winning touchdown uh, and nobody really knew about me, but then it, they knew about me then, right? And so we actually went to the playoffs. Uh, we ended up losing to Gorman, I want to say, uh, in the zone finals uh, that year. And uh, that was at the Silver Bowl back in the day, Samboy Stadium way out west or east, actually, uh, here in the Valley. But uh, that's when I got on the map. And then certainly the, the next year is when everything took off for me. Mike Pritchard is our guest as we are live from Virgin Hotels in Vegas, our initial podcast. So, now things are grooving. Yeah. You're, you're now a star in this town, and you're thinking about the opportunity to possibly play in college. Right. What's your dad thinking when the letters start coming? Because I've never asked you this. We've been great friends for yep. a long time. Was it one of those scenes in a room where letters started to build up oh, yeah. on the floor, oh, yeah. on the kitchen table? Moving Tell me box, about that. Moving box, storage boxes of letters. Yeah, I mean, But that quickly, Mike, sure. you talked about the freshman year missing right. training camp. To them, what happened? So this thing clicked pretty quick. It did, JT. And I don't, I've never told you this story. As long as I've known you, I've never told you this story. So it, it was after my junior year, and I'm getting letters from everybody. I mean, everybody. You, you named the school. I was getting letters from them. My dad gets transferred to San Antonio, Texas. So I had a choice right there. After my junior year, um, I couldn't stay here. I'm like, my dad just got transferred, so I had to go to Texas. I went to San Antonio, wow. Texas, and to this school called uh, Randolph High School. It was a Randolph. It was right outside of San Antonio. They were 3A. Back then they had 5A. And so, but they were a really good, really good 3A school. They, they, they mimicked themselves after Air Force, the Air Force Academy. So they had the same emblems and everything. I get there, and Coach Mickler, I'll never forget this guy's name, I went out there, and I said, hey, I, I just transferred in. My dad uh, is in the military. We're at the base now. Can I go out for the football team? This was spring ball, right? You have spring ball in Texas. And, and he says, yeah, what position do you play? I'm like, running back. And he's like, oh, we have a running back. And I'm like, well, can I get a chance to try out, and maybe I can beat him out? Oh, no, no, he's all state. He's going to get a scholarship. He's this, he's that. And I'm like, okay. So I go home. I tell my dad what happened. He's like, well, take all those letters with you. JT, I went to the school with a, with a moving box of letters from every school imaginable, right? And I showed him. I showed Coach Mickler this. I'm like, well, I'm getting recruited too, and this is what I've done. He's like, no, I don't care. I'll move you to defensive back. And I'm Amazing. like, no way, right? So this is that perseverance part of the story I'm telling you about, the first time missing uh, my freshman year not playing football, and then here I get transferred. Long story short, we made it to where I could move back to Vegas and live with my sister in a trailer. And my senior year, I lived in a trailer so I could play football at Rancho and still stay true to all those recruitment letters and everybody that had interest in me. Wow, what a story from Mike Pritchard, former NFL wide receiver. So there was a chance in Texas if they said, oh, absolutely, we have a spot for you, maybe not starting, but you're going to play halfback and play wide receiver that you don't come back to Rancho. No, I don't. I mean, let me try out, right? Because my dad wow. got transferred. Let me, let me try out. Let me see if I can beat out this guy that you 
claimed that it's so good and is going to get a scholarship. The player ended up going to TCU. He never started. He never played. Of course. When, when I got drafted, though, when I got Uh-oh. drafted, Uh-oh. we sent a copy of my contract to Coach Mickler. Uh, and so we had to rub him, rub his nose in that a little bit right there. But, uh, no, it, it, I think it's the, the story or the lesson there is just about perseverance. Don't let anything get in your way if, if you have enough passion for it. Mike Pritchard joins us. So now we get to Colorado, not only one of the greatest teams of all time, yeah. captain of a national championship team where your career really exploded to a next level. So for our audience who doesn't know the backstory, mm-hmm. what happened with Colorado? With all the choices you had, you talked about those boxes of letters. Right. Why would you end up there in Boulder? Well, it was a recruiting trip. Bill McCartney, uh, credit to him, they had 14 scholarships my freshman year. And when we took our uh, visit to Colorado, on that trip was me, Eric Bieniemy, Alfred Williams, George Hemingway, Canavis McGee. Um, all these elite players, and somehow Bill McCartney secured us all on the same trip. So, of course, we were having a good time like everybody does on a recruiting trip, and we were playing dominoes, JT, and we went around the room as we were playing dominoes. Where are you going? Where are you going? Who's recruiting you? And so we we laid it all, all out on the table, and then we were like, forget that. Why don't we all sign here? And I bet you we can win a national championship. And so sure enough, JT, to, to this day, all these guys are my brothers. We all signed. And we all, like, canceled some of our trips. I, I, I took a couple more trips, but then after that I was like, no, I'm going to Colorado. And so what that's happened? That's another, hold on, that's yeah. another moment where if someone interrupts that meeting or someone goes mm-hmm. with a girlfriend or someone's parents wants to take them to dinner, Take me back to that portal in your life where everybody's looking each other in the eyes saying, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. I mean, we and, and that was a goal. So we went to school at the University of Colorado, education, obviously, but to win a national championship. I mean, I think some of the some of the guys, some of the crew like, OK, of course, you want to get to the National Football League. But winning a national championship would take care of that. Right. But it was just that collective thought process, that effort, J.T., that we all bought into. Uh, and, again, we're all brothers to this day. Uh, and it was just that passion that we had, but that will uh, and certainly that desire to win a championship. So before the championship, take me to the Tennessee game, mm-hmm. the legendary <laughs> game, and right. how that still is something that you're stopped, you get letters, you get emails, you get text messages. You're on Twitter when people talk about that game and yeah. how that opened up your life for the NFL. Yeah, it was a great uh, situation for me, Coach Mack. I mean, we, we had so much competition on our roster, so much talent, that, that my senior year I moved out to wide receiver because I thought – I could be explosive out on the outside. We can have Eric Bieniemy, who's a Heisman Trophy candidate. We can have Darian Hagan, George Hemingway, who moved from tailback to fullback, who was just as good as Emmett Smith in high school. We could have all this loaded talent on the field all at once. And Max said, look, if you can learn wide receiver, you can play it. So I learned wide receiver. I slimmed down. But unfortunately, Eric uh, Bieniemy was not available for that game against Tennessee. Uh, and we needed him, obviously. But Coach Matt called me into the office and Bill McCartney and says, you're the best tailback I have, including Eric. But you're not as big as Eric. You're not as durable as Eric. That's why, you know, when you wanted to move to wide receiver, I let you. I'm like, okay. And he's like, I need you to play running back. I need you to play tailback. I'm about 175 pounds, JT. So I'm like, sure, whatever it's going to take to help us win this game, I'll play it. And, you know, I ran for 220. 
220 yards. 220. Yeah, had two touchdowns. Caught at a one pass. of the great stadiums yeah, it was in Anaheim, America. In, in Anaheim, and it was a kick, uh, pigskin classic against Tennessee from the SEC. So what was going on? Because they don't come out much. We still can do a podcast on the SEC we doesn't could. go west. Are you telling me yeah. you have a story? Alabama doesn't go west. Right. We got Georgia. You had a Tennessee game in Anaheim. We Well, Tennessee jumped in because Florida State didn't want to play us. Amazing. Because they thought that if they lost wow. that game, it would ruin their national championship. Oh, my hopes. God. But we didn't care. We wanted to play anybody and everybody. And, and so, yeah, it's a big, bad Tennessee volunteers from the SEC. Alvin Harper, Carl Pickens. Yeah. Um, uh, Anton Davis, Charles McRae. I mean, they were loaded, too. And, uh, um. I mean, this was, I, I think it's fate, but it wasn't Dick Enberg. Stockton, I, I, I want to say it was Stockton. Dick who called Stockton, him, I think, yeah, might have been legend. The, but the analyst was Bill Walsh. And so for me to run for 220. As when, a wide receiver. As, as a wide receiver and Bill Walsh as an analyst to call the game, that just put me on everybody in the National Football League on the radar of every single team at that point. All right, so get me to the national championship mm-hmm. and the pressure that year. And what was the biggest takeaway for you in your entire life, your success you have as, now as a broadcaster? What did you learn that year for the national championship with the pressure, the trials, yeah. and tribulations? Well, it was a revenge situation because my junior year, we should have beat Notre Dame. We were undefeated. We lost. I uh, couldn't handle the halftime, the, the elongated halftime. So we got back into the same situation, JT, and here we are playing for the national championship against Notre Dame. Uh, the Rocket, Jerome Bettis, uh, Rick Meyer, wow. Ricky Waters, that Notre Dame, right? Uh, and so, again, Bill Walsh is on the call. He's on the call again. <laughs> and I broke my hand in practice, but I was not, not going to play in the game. So I ended up playing in the game, make some big catches with a broken hand. But it, was, it goes back to that, to that recruiting trip that we all made a pledge that we wanted to come to this school and win a national championship. And here we had another opportunity to do that. And we weren't going to be denied that time. So you end up getting drafted by the Falcons. You go in the first round, the 13th pick overall. What was your mindset? Because back in the day, you know, the draft hasn't changed that much. But the phone call, I always, I've never asked you this too, Mike, and we've been friends so long. The difference between you going 12, 14, 18, 21 is the difference in living out west, in the Midwest, in a cold town, sure. or going to Atlanta? What was that like? What were the conversations like going into the well, draft? The conversations were awesome, JT. I mean, you know, back then the, the draft was 15 minutes per pick uh, in the first round, and uh, my phone started ringing at pick nine. You know, you, you, you had people planning ahead, so I, I would get calls from Pittsburgh. I would get calls from Dallas. I get calls from Atlanta. Obviously, I get calls from other teams that were lower, uh, thinking that hey, we might have to trade up because we're anticipating a run on receivers, and that's what happened. So Herman Moore gets drafted, Alvin Harper gets drafted, and then I get drafted. So there's this run on receivers, and I mean your world is changing. Like I'm thinking, I'm going in the second round. Maybe that's what my agent told me, and I had no idea I was going to go in the first round. I'm still in my underwear. Uh, JT in the middle of my apartment. So not a party, not no, like catered, no, sandwiches, no. and <laughs> Sandman in my eye and underwear. Really? <laughs> yes. Why was that? I mean, you had a feeling, right? Or second round? I thought I was going to go second round, so, which would have been another day. So here I am watching the first round. In fact, I woke up late. I, I woke up. I think there were four picks, four picks into the first round, and then my world starts to change with all these the phone, phone calls. Ringing. Yeah. Incredible. So, 
Uh, no, it's, it's life-changing to HJT. Uh, I can't describe the feeling. Uh, and, again, I, I don't know if it's fate or not, but something told my dad to record the first round of the 1991 draft, and we have that on tape. On a VHS yes, tape. Yes, on a VHS tape. And this is I mean, so good. It, it's so good. I mean, we're going to write a book. We have to write a book, right? But, uh, no, he record, recorded it. And to their surprise, they're just watching it. And all of a sudden, uh, they hear their son's name be announced as the 13th overall pick to Atlanta Falcons. Mike Pritchard from right here at Virgin Hotel right here in Las Vegas, the old hard rock, which we'll get to that momentarily in our DNA and our friendship here. So Brett Favre, Deion Sanders, John Elway. Give our audience an idea of the players that you played with. Because we've stayed up many a nights and talked about this, where all those people had impacts on you early in your career, and your mind is exploding with Dion. Mm -hmm. And you look at the history of Favre, and then you get to Elway. What was that like, your entrance into the NFL? Well, Dion picks me up from the airport and shows me around the city. Shows me (laughs) where to go, what not to do, what to do, where to go, who to talk to, and uh, he was so gracious with his time, but he was the ultimate teammate. Deion Sanders is a great, great teammate. Wow. Uh, and I don't know if people, you know, want to buy into the whole prime time. That, that was for him to make money. But Deion Sanders, a person, is a quality, quality person, a great, great human. Um, but, yeah, no, I played with Bill Fralick and Mike Kim and offensive line, Jamie Dukes, uh, Chris Hinton, uh, Bob Whiffle, Lincoln Kennedy Lincoln, uh, was on wow. the team. I mean, we were we were loaded with talent, but it was an organization that just was dysfunctional at the time, right? And um, a lot. Did of you coach, know that? No, no, you don't yeah, you know, didn't that know that. You're, you're in no. the middle of training. And yeah, you're, you're trying to make practice. your mark, right? Yeah. Right. But as it turned out, Andre Risen's on that team, and we we won. We went to the playoffs and we beat the New Orleans Saints my my rookie year, and then we lost to I, I believe the best Super Bowl team ever in the '91 Washington team. Uh, I mean, they were so loaded, so stacked. But th- to be able to understand Brett Favre as a rookie was interesting. Uh, to be able to dive into the mind of Deion Sanders and pick the brain of people like Andre Risen, uh, Drew Hill, uh, just to understand what the game was all about from those guys, uh, that was something that w- made an impression on me uh, and something I carried throughout my career. Greatest NFL memory still to this day, game Ooh. day. Ooh. Because I know how many relationships you yeah. have and friendships. Yeah. I've seen it, but just on, in a game when you when your mind goes to rest at right. night and if it ever wakes up on a hot summer night in Vegas and you wake up and go, man, that's the night I want to go back to or game I want to go back to. I mean, I had so many, JT. Um, my first touchdown of my career, I beat Junior Sale across his face uh, on a crossing route. Uh, and that was in San Diego, by the way. Uh, and, I mean, that's, that's you can't. You can't let that memory One down. One of my favorite players yep. ever. Oh, me too. Great people too. Great people. The Great best. person right there. Um, and then two touchdowns against uh, Dallas Cowboys, the defending Super Bowl champions on national TV, Sunday Night Football back then. And um, but you know, catching touchdowns from John Elway and Warren Moon. I mean, how do you oh. how do you rate everything? Right. I mean, I think my whole career was perfect. I, I, the knee injury ended it prematurely, uh, but I'm satisfied with it. Absolutely. You had a great career when you came to grips with the rehab and the knee injury mm-hmm. and going back and forth, knowing the money that was on the table. When did you finally just have to say it's not happening? Well, uh, my last year, Mike Holmgren was our head coach in Seattle. We go to the playoffs. We lose to Dan Marino uh, on, a, on a fourth quarter, last-minute wow. drive, two-minute drive. But uh, 
that year, JT, I was getting my knee drained three times a week. I was taking toward all shots, and I didn't want to do that for another year because I was bone on bone, and I knew it. Um, and and I, you just know at that point you can't do the same thing. You know, you can't uh, be viable, you know, and so you're, you're an older player now. And certainly with that injury, I was, I was a, a really old player. But I did get a call from Bruce Allen from the Raiders uh, who had they had followed me. Uh, and they said, hey, look, I, we understand about your knee, but we really think um, uh, we would love to see you in the silver and black. And I thought about it, but I, my knee just couldn't get right. You so, knew. You yeah, knew. You yeah. knew at that point. Yeah. Let's fast forward as we wrap this up live from Virgin Hotels. It's our initial podcast series, the broadcasting. Mm-hmm. I think of you now as a broadcaster and one of the best, the great work you're doing at VEASAN, the work you did in Denver, locally here. When did the broadcasting call come when you thought you needed to get into that space? Well, being back here in Vegas, um, I was on a frequent guest with Al Bernstein uh, on the Al the Bernstein Bel- Sports Party. Oh, he's so good. <laughs> he's awesome. I mean, do you feel like when you're around him, you're just better? Oh, absolutely. He makes everybody feel better when they're absolutely. around Absolutely. So I was a, a weekly guest for him, and um, he asked me what I was interested in, what I was going to do, and I told him, you know, I'm about to work on Wall Street, I think. Because, you know, I was, right. I'm an economist, right? And that's what I went to school for. And he's like, I really think you have a knack for, for this broadcasting stuff. And I'm like, well, how do, you, how do you go about it? And he called Rich Rhodes from Caesar Palace, Palace, who was the communications director, who got involved with the um, Las Vegas Gladiators, an arena football team that was moving here. Uh, and he teamed me up with Andrew Siciliano. And a, so I started with him at Fox. Right, it's right. incredible how it, that goes, and he does does a great job on NFL Network. He's awesome. today he anchored training camp for yep. the whole network. Yep, that's yep. great. He called me a couple days ago, and and we're we're going over a couple ideas that I think is going to be pretty exciting. Oh, good. Yeah, but uh, no, that's how I got into it, and I broadcasted uh, UNLV football for 13 years after that, and some college football as well, uh, and then I started doing some studio shows, obviously. Uh, out there in Denver with 104.3 The Fan and then certainly locally, locally here with ESPN Las Vegas and, and Raider Nation Radio as well. I want to wrap it up with this topic that you turned me on to, the difference between a great quarterback mm-hmm. and elite quarterback. Now there's new guys breaking into the business, right. Mike, that all they do is list. They get on debate shows and they go, oh, here's my top five. Yeah. Here's yeah. my Mount Rushmore. Here's my top ten. So when you do this and we look at this elite category, because you turned me on to Derek Carr a couple of years ago before their first season without fans mm-hmm. when we were working together, and you suggested that he had to take his game to another level. Right. And that was looking off. Mm-hmm. It was looking off coverage and going back. And I spent this week at Raiders training camp, and the one thing I saw, and I'm a big Gruden guy, and okay. Josh McDaniels, I'm all on board with. Josh McDaniels, the only coach ever to have six Super Bowl right. rings as a coordinator right. and, a, and a coach, mm-hmm. quarterback coach. I saw him behind Derek, and he wasn't looking at Derek. He was looking at the right tackle, and he was looking at the coverage. And I said, okay, here we go. This is Belichick. This is what he learned for all those years behind Brady. Mm -hmm. So when we don't hear Derek Carr in that elite category, but we see Burrow and Justin Herbert, and Herbert hasn't played yet in the playoffs. Burrow went to the Super Bowl. How do you on VEASAN categorize who's elite and who's close to being elite? Well, okay, if you start with Derek Carr, I I think he's getting there. Um, He certainly has elevated his game. I I think when we had that conversation, it it was Derek Carr playing quarterback, but he was not manipulating a defense. See, when you're an elite player or a quarterback, you're manipulating the defense. 
you are moving linebackers. You are moving safeties. You are getting the defense to do what you want them to do. A lot of times when you watch the game, JT, quarterbacks, they're, they're programmed. They're going to throw the ball here. They're going to throw the ball there. But elite quarterbacks, they manipulate the defense. Uh, and and it's, it's, a special, it's a special talent, but uh, it's, it's only for the few. Uh, but those are the guys that have the uh, the most amount of success. I mean, it is, is really that a incredible. veteran? Is that a veteran, or can you do that as a young player? Marino went to the Super Bowl right. his rookie year and never went back. How do you do that? You played with Elway mm-hmm. and Favre to come in quickly and know. I thought Gannon was great with the pump rate. Sure. When when he won the MVP, right. it was about him not having a big arm, but looking off people and then hitting Tim Brown wide open, Rice wide open. So cars on that point now with Waller, Renfro, and now he has Devontae. Right. Carr has all the talent in the world, and it's no longer about talent because everybody in the league's got talent. It's it's how do you evolve to win playoff games? You know, if you want to be elite, you have to win a playoff game. You have to. That's a requirement. Um, so I, I think for the guys that you mentioned and the consistency that they had, uh, they just understood how they could manipulate a defense. And I've seen this in, in spurts with Derek Carr. Uh, you can go back to the Kansas City game uh, in Arrowhead a couple years ago yeah. with, during COVID when he just manipulated that defense. Honey Badger. And he carved him up. Uh, I agree. And I'm like, finally, he's doing it. He's doing it now. The consistency, though, is that I, I think that's what you're referring to in terms of what you're looking for. When you see it on a consistent basis from those type of players, then that's that's when you know that those guys have arrived. What's next for you in your life and career? Oh man, I I, I don't know. Uh, I'm so excited about what's happening in Vegas right now. Vsin, uh, Vegas Sports Information Network. I mean, it's so it's so great. Um, but my broadcasting career, I don't know where I want to go with it yet. Still, uh, so I I am. Taking, that's really honest, by the yeah. way. Yeah, that is because you're now in a space now where you have to look at numbers and you mm-hmm. have to say. It's three and a half. It moved to three. Right. The total moved. And you quickly have to talk about that with A-list guests. Right. How comfortable are you with that? I'm comfortable now. Uh, I okay. freely admit that there was a learning curve, a steep one. Uh, but I flatten it being at VSIN. Certainly. They helped, they helped me to do that. But my, my comfort is being an analyst, though. I, I yeah. love that. I love being an analyst, JT. So uh, I don't know where my, my career is going to go, but certainly I, I know being an analyst, I'm going to be involved with that that way for sure. You're a great friend. Thanks for doing this. I'm going to remember this one. Friend. As, as this place. And real quick on the yes. way out, what does this property mean to you? It means a lot. Uh, you know, I met, I met one of my best friends here, Todd Parmley. Yeah. Um, he took me here, big Seattle Seahawks fan. And we were at another property, and he drove over to this place. He's got to show it to me, right? And um, he's playing Motley Crue on level 10 <laughs> in his car. And I'm like, who is this guy? And then we get to the center bar, and, I mean, the rest is history. I get to meet people like you, your wife, Julia, yeah. and so many other great friends that we all met on this property, and it means so much to me. And the Virgin rebrand is right. important because it's the evolution, mm-hmm. and they're doing it here. The restaurants are great. The right. pool's great. You come here. We go to Olives and eat, and we have a great time, but it's about friendship. It, it really is. It, it really is. I, I have so many friends that come into town, and this is where they want to stay, they, you know. They can go to the strip they want to. You can always get to the strip, but this property, it just feels more comfortable. Uh, and I think a lot of people are recognizing that right now. Thanks for doing this, Mike. This Thank was fun. This was, was our, this was our deep dive <laughs> here, was. man. Thanks it for was. doing it. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Mike Pritchard.
We continue our inaugural podcast at Virgin Hotels Las Vegas. John Katsalamidis, Johnny Katz from the Review Journal is one of my great friends, the premier entertainment reporter right here in Vegas. And I think globally. Good to see you, my friend. How are <laughs> How's you? it going? Good to see you, brother. How I'm you happy you were able to come here and be one of my first guests. It means a lot to Boz and the entire team here because you know the DNA of this property, oh, yeah. the evolution of it, the hard hat period, breaking ground, the challenges in Vegas through COVID, and you're a big supporter of what they're doing here. Yeah, I was here last night. <laughs> I was at the Shag Room last night and I hung out at uh, at one steakhouse. I'm here quite a bit, and I was here quite a bit in the old days too, and at the original Hard Rock Hotel day. So it's a it's a familiar parcel, and uh, the Virgin uh, in its current incarnation is a familiar resort uh, even today. What jumps out at you because the music background that you have, and all your friends who are musicians and people behind the scenes, still having the theater to be able to have the cornerstone of this property, what does it mean now and going forward? I think it's uh, it's really important to keep the, uh, the theater, they call it now, um, here, the old joint, uh, activated. And the more shows you have, the more great shows, the better. Because, uh, you know, in the old days, it, this was the kind of place where uh, live entertainment, especially concerts, were helped drive business. You know, it was one of the big reasons you came to the Hard Rock is you could see so many, so many acts in those days. And uh, in coming back, I've uh, I've been in uh, fortunate enough to start journey in there most recently. Uh, it's a great facility. The sound is really, really yeah, great in there. It is. It's it really is. great. And uh, you know, you got the the great uh, sight lines, and it's been refreshed. And uh, you know, I think the next step for that room, to be honest, is to come into with some kind of naming partner and, and uh, kind of jazz it up that way and, and increase uh, the, the business prospects that way. And I think Boz wants to do that in the next, within the next year. Absolutely. How hard is it now to book acts at every level? From the biggest level, we heard the U2 mm-hmm. rumor at the Sphere and yeah. what's happening to Resorts World, to what they have here. Because I think they have a really big advantage here in having the history and DNA of the theater the old joint to get acts that have been here before and want to come back to Vegas and play again. Yeah, they, they, there is that. You know, they've got a, the facility is great, the room is great, but you also have to think in this in this whole uh, environment of other theaters that have uh, opened since the days of the joint and and even uh, you know they're coming back online. This, this place is competing with places like uh, the Pearl at the Palms, which is reopened. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in that same climate, the Chelsea over at the, at the uh, Cosmopolitan, for example. So it's really hyper-competitive. And there are only, there's a finite number of acts that you can bring in that can do um, you know, either one-offs or on tour or short residencies. So it's really, I know that the folks here who book the, the theater are keeping an eye on all the other theaters and what yeah. they're doing. And if they, you know, they want to they accelerate, but they don't want to accelerate too fast in trying to make offers to people because then you create bidding wars and you don't win every bidding war. You know, the Vegas bidding wars now are fascinating to me yeah. because there's so many residencies. We'll get back to that in a moment. I want to start off with your life. Take us back to a young age when you decided that journalism, television, rock and roll, other forms of music had a really big impact on your heart and your life. And you wanted to get into some form of that industry. You know, we had, um, you know, when I was growing up, if you want to go back to that point, I had um, uh, kind of dual passions and I, I loved entertainment i love comedians i love music 
and I love sports. We were athletic, my brother and I. We, if you could run with it or throw it or hit it <laughs> or roll it, we were there, you know. Yard darts, bocce, foot races, boofle ball. I don't care what it was. Swimming, we would compete. And I became really, you know, we were into that. We were, you know, little jocks, you know. In those days, we were guys who really liked to, to play sports. So I became, you know, as we moved forward, a sports writer. You know, that was my first job. And... Um, uh, but we, all, I always had that interest in uh, in live performances, and uh, as I moved forward and moved here to Las Vegas as a sports writer, I became more and more enamored of, uh, obviously, the entertainment culture here, and I just really, uh, it, it resonated with me to see how shows are assembled and how performers put their, uh, their productions together and how they uh, bands work and even in small places just like i said i was over here at the shag uh, room last night and watching just a little show and mm-hmm. it was just really fun to watch you know uh, people enjoying themselves and to tell those stories that's what i wanted to do i, I it, it evolved into that that's what i wanted to do i wanted to go you know get to know those the people who made it happen who can draw an audience and entertain people and what makes the, you know, what, and tap into that passion for it. And I, I'm, you know, I'm still that way. I still have as much uh, um, energy behind it as I ever have. Johnny Katz joins us. Let's go back to sports. What were those early teams? So when you look at the early baseball teams or football teams, your brother, your family, you're sitting on the couch. Who, what, who did you gravitate when to? I was in Pocatello, Idaho. I'll tell you, it was an interesting little town. Um, we got at night... We oh, got here the, we go. The, you had the radio dialed the, the, in. Yes, yes. I had a little boombox. It had a. Uh, it had a. It was. Uh, fact, it had actually a, a an eight track and a cassette player in it, and I, it had great range. This thing, and I could get the KDWN uh, feed at night from Las Vegas. KDON, and KDON carried the Dodger games. Incredible. At night, only at night. So I would listen to every. Dodger game every night game, the Dodgers played in L.A. or on the West uh, Coast. That's when I, I got it and listened to Vince Scully call Dodger games. So I got to know the the great infield of Garvey, Lopes, Russell, and Say, and it's Dusty fantastic. Baker, Reggie Smith, Don Sutton, Burt Hooten, uh, Steve Yeager, all those guys. They were I knew that uh, team. I mean, I just knew that team, and I followed them all the way through the seventies, late seventies, into the. Into the uh, well, into 1980. When and that moved. was that all Vince Scully all talking Vin. to you in your mm-hmm. mind. And what do you remember about those storytelling in between yeah. pitches and innings? It was it was that it was the storytelling. Well, here we have Reggie Smith coming to the blade, and Reggie to give us the whole background about Reggie Smith. You know, nice. <laughs> so it was a storytelling thing. We were into the game, but you get taken out of the game to listen to you know some of the the history he'd tell a history of candlestick point here where we are tonight you know it's very windy here they knew it was going to be windy when willie mays came out and they (laughs) said the wind is blowing too hard to have a stadium here and you learned about the game you know you still remember that and after the game after dodger games they do the um the stardust sports line or at an Imperial Palace. I think they had two different locations over the years, and they'd run through all the games on the board. The, the, they'd do the, the telecast, the broadcast from the sports book. So they'd have a, they'd have the. God, I can't remember who was Lem Barker was part of them. Anyway, uh, they would go through and handicap every game on the Spartardus sports book board after the Dodger game. So I'd be sitting there and I'd be listening. I said, "What an interesting world!" They'd be, uh, you know, college football. That you know, if that was the season, and they'd go through and they'd, they'd handicap, they'd give a line on every game, their opinion on every game. 
And I was like, God, that's really fascinating. So when I moved to Las Vegas, one of the first things I did, I went to the Stardust to find the sports book. <laughs> because you heard about it. You yeah, knew I'd about never it. been there. <laughs> it was like, and I ran into Jimmy J.J. Walker that day. Incredible. He was in there. <laughs> Johnny Catch joins us. Were you a kid that wanted to get out of Idaho, or could you have been successful and had the arc of your life staying there? You know, getting getting out of Idaho, or even getting, I grew up the second half of my development was in Chico, California, similar, yeah. you know, same type of town. Um, it wasn't that. We moved as a family out of Idaho you know, uh, incidentally, you know, my dad was a, a veterinarian at the time, and he sold his practice to buy land in Northern California. The Greek side of my families were all ranchers, and they did farming, and and uh, so it was kind of a natural progression. Progression. I don't know what I can't imagine what would have happened to me if I didn't uh, move out of Idaho or move out of Chico. Um, I really, and I felt. Here's the thing: I love the energy and the bigness of Las Vegas and and what everything it is, but I like even more the community part of it the, yeah, the core yeah that i'm kind of a smaller smaller town kind of guy you know and um I, I, that that's the thing that, that got me about las vegas is that the the community generally and especially the entertainment community is very tight and i learned that about even when i was a sports writer about the unld uh, sports program and the rebels in those days it was very tight so I, I kind of got into it. I could understand that. And then the, the core of the, the city welcomes all the people who visit the city. So, you know, that's kind of like a, it's kind of a bigger version of what we used to do in Idaho and in, in, uh, in California, too. It's just a very, they're very welcoming places. Johnny, so is Las Vegas. Johnny Katz is our guest. So what was the big break? What changed everything? People ask you this. What was the moment where something happened to you? And you said, I'm out of here, or I'm packing my bags, or I want to do this. I'm changing a direction. What was it that? It probably was when I got hired at the Review Journal originally to, to cover the Rebels. I was in 1996. And I, at that point, I was covering community sports in Redding, California, for the record, Searchlight, where uh, among the people I worked with in those days was Rich Eisen at the yeah. ABC affiliate. I got to know Rich. We go all the way back. Leads into me every day on Raider Nation Radio. Yes, there you go. There's that's something we haven't covered. We used to cover high school girls basketball and and uh, you know prep football. Same time, you know, he'd be carrying his equipment around. So that's how I that's where I was before Las Vegas. Yeah, we. I just talked to Rich when he was out here for the draft. I'd seen. I hadn't seen him in years. And it was like two brothers who had been away from each other forever. It was like immediately we started talking about that those days so in cool. Redding, California, man. But um, anyway, so I yeah, I was working at the Record Searchlight in Redding, and, and I got hired here. And it was a leap. You know, it was a real leap from what I was doing in, in Northern California, um, even though we did spot coverage of the 49ers and Raiders and things like that, and Sacramento Kings and Giants and A's. Coming to Las Vegas was like a big move that way, and I had, and that that was the big moment was being here because I was in position now to to make something of of uh, a place that I really loved, and uh, I, I I came in and originally I thought you know we'll see where this leads me maybe it'll lead me to back to the Bay Area or something like that but pretty quickly I just thought you know I'm going to stay here as long as I can you know and and do this work but that was the break. Going from that to covering you know the football or basketball to covering the speedway, yeah. I covered the opening of the speedway, the first inter, uh, IRL. By the race. way, how big is that? Knowing the size, yeah. Uh, I was just talking about it today on the radio show about the size of NASCAR here in town mm. as we have a playoff race, yeah. And that's the biggest sporting event by far in Vegas. Will never be top. You're not going to get two hundred thousand for a national championship college game or a Raider yeah, game, a live or a big do. boxing mm-hmm. match. So to see that, yeah. so I didn't know that. So you were smart enough to see Vegas 
when Vegas, when you got here, Tyson was big, yes. boxing was big, yes. and all that, and music was big. Mm-hmm. So your work ethic, I want to talk about that because I always see you, and my wife and I are always fascinated when you're out working the deal, you're at a show, it's 2 in the morning, it's 1 in the morning, it's 7 in the morning, you get a call from someone the next day, hey, I'm in town, we have a minute to have a conversation. What's your DNA with work ethic? Who taught you about that? You know, uh, I come from, <laughs> well, it's inherent, really. You yeah. Know, I always say, if you think I work hard, you should see my brother and my father. <laughs> right. <laughs> they run me into the ground. Uh, I think what it is, um, I just feel very good. I'm in good condition. I'm very, uh, I'm doing something I have a lot of passion for naturally. So it's not like I wake up and dread having to, to do my job. The first thing I do is start in. I either start writing or start collecting or start reading something that I'm going to write about. And um, that, that's it, you know. And I think the energy of Las Vegas will carry you through. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I can't get off. I could never get off the couch. And, you know, I'm binge-watching Netflix, and you're out there at the, you know, at, at the Virgin covering you know, a show at the, in, in 24, 24 Oxford. Oxford. Yeah, right. that's exactly that's a good example. Yeah. And, uh, but I said when I'm there, it makes perfect sense. It makes I, that's where I'm supposed to be, and the energy of that situation, that scene, uh, carries you through. And um, I, I just think it. Um, the, I think the work. People don't see the actual work. They see me moving around and doing social media at very, uh, um, you know, kind of romantic places. But they don't see the transcription, or they don't see all the phone work I do during the day. Yeah. Me padding around my my apartment in my uh, in my sweats, you know. <laughs> Doing well, I want to follow up on long, that. Johnny you know? Katz's orgasm. I want to follow up on that because when you're at a Stones concert with 60,000 people at a Legion or you're coming up to this Motley Crue show that's coming in, there are nights where you're working small venues yeah. and you're looking at your watch going, there's more to a story here yeah. and there's more to what you're thinking about and you kind of grind through it. But there's a love for it. So you're not feeling you're not feeling like, oh, my God, this is a job. Are you still immersed in that point where your friends are there, the artists are there, the artist community are there? It's Vegas, a small town. You want to tell that story. Yeah, if you want to, and if you want to tell the story of Las Vegas, you have to tell it at all levels. You right. Know? Uh, our city has to have we, – we do the big stuff that you mentioned really well. But, we, but I'm as, I am as interested as some of the small capacity sort of – I call them the unpopped kernels that are going on in Las Vegas because you're only as great as that level as a city. You know, um, I, I see something like, for example, I have uh, uh, my friend Amy Saunders, who's misbehaved from the misbehaved game show. She's open cheap shot on Fremont East. This is an off the midway uh, adult variety show. Um, well, Mavericks is a show that's it's inside the club that's called cheap shot. And there's a great deal of talent and edge in that venue it's the old um, beauty bar mm-hmm. uh, don't tell mama annex over there on on, uh, on fremont east and i go in there and it seats you know 80 to 100 people everybody's tightly packed and it is a banging show it's a it's a great experience and, and she wants me to be there to to help you know generate interest in it of course and i i say that type of thing you know the the uh, majestic uh, repertory theater is another one is has to succeed in Las Vegas for us to be the entertainment capital of the world. Those small things have to work. Anybody can do an arena show, but Las Vegas is different because of, of all the smaller shows that we have here, too. Well, let's wrap it up and talk about how you covered COVID, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting because you were out on the street. Yeah. You did a bicycle ride down the strip when no one was on it. 
you covered the Raiders, who I want to get to, and the Raiders moving here during COVID. And Mark Davis, who you became good friends with, decided, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go to games. The fans can't go. With all of that, where's your mindset here on a Friday at the end of July in 2022, knowing what Governor Sisolak's been through, Mayor Goodman, all these people that are close to you? How tough was that for everybody to get through this? And where are we? Are we on our way out of this? Or are we into another, hey, let's wait and see? Well, I, as far as that last point goes, we might be in a seasonal um, yeah. concern with COVID. It might be COVID season as the temperatures eventually will drop and, you know, it becomes a different, it changes its characteristics, this virus. But I think that um, what, the thing about COVID and being shut down and, and not just quarantine, but having entertainment shut down and mass gathering shut down, we had to continue to do this column to give people the idea that everything was going to come back. I love this. You know, yes. that, I was insistent. I said, you know, there you could you could make the argument, you know, I should take some weeks off if there's nothing. And I said, no, we're going to continue to write what these folks are doing. Entertainment might be shut down, but entertainers are not. They're doing things digitally. There are a lot of fundraisers going on there. Everybody's dispersed and they have different projects and different. There's human interest stories. We did a, I did a series of those. And as we go forward, I'm glad I did that because as we go forward, the types of conversations that I was having with somebody like a David Perico in 2020 are way different today than they were in 2020. Because what is David Perico now? He's the Raiders house band. Absolutely. If you look at the, the, the he'll leap, be with me in Canton. Yeah, this week. I'm going there too. Good. Yeah, we're, I'm going f- to to observe them. You know, we, but we have 19 musicians, uh, singers in, from Las Vegas, all locals, all Las Vegas people that Mark Davis has brought into the Allegiant Stadium and hired and presented as the Raiders house band. Two years ago, two and a half years ago, these folks weren't sure that they were going to be entertaining at all professionally. So you talk about that, where we are, that means a lot to me. And I remember having these conversations with David especially because he has a whole entertainment uh, setup you know they do his corporates and different bands and everything and he's like you know we are up against it because we just have to ride this out and hope that when we reopen we're going to get corporate business back we're going to get we had no idea about the raiders at that point right but corporate something you know something that would drive business to allow these bands to come back and these entertainers again so now david's got bands at the you know here he's got the, the popular shag room. He's got the, the palms. He's got bands all over the place and in Canton next week. So I'm really happy for him and all those guys that this is going on. Let's wrap it up with sports, with your sports background. The Golden Knights with Bill Foley mm-hmm. got a taste of early success. Yes. Now it looks like it's a reset, but with some really good players. And Mark Davis is coming off a 10-win season in the playoffs, mm-hmm. and now most people have them as the third or fourth team or eight and a half here in Vegas instead of 10 yeah. or 11 with Denver. So I want you to talk about mm-hmm. your relationship with both owners, Bill Foley and what you've seen him go through in this five-year arc, which from 1 October to everything he's done here, I think it's incredible. And then Mark Davis is a different beast. You've gotten to know him yeah. inside this property, and how has that friendship evolved? You know, it's. Uh, I think in both cases they are of, um, they are uniquely as- affiliated and associated with Las Vegas. You know, Foley came in here, and it just that team hit at the right time. It wasn't their doing. The, 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 it was determined outside their own. You know evolution but they happened to come here at the time when we needed something like that and they that first season especially everything they did worked it was like watching someone pitch a perfect game you know 
it was just like boom, boom, boom. And, and Bill has, you know, maintained his temperament and maintained his, his position and, and been an active in the community. And the Golden Knights will always be the first uh, Las Vegas professional franchise that was meant to be from the beginning of a Vegas major professional franchise. You know, the Raiders did come from somewhere else. You know, they, they mm-hmm. did. But what Mark did was lay the groundwork before the team moved about, he got his associates associations figured out pretty pretty well and who he wanted to, to help who he wanted to partner with how, how he was going to be in the I, I'm very impressed that he became a member of the uh, Cleveland Clinic yes. Center for Brain you're, Health you're board. A big part of that yeah yeah I'm very supportive of that and he did that without even yeah. seeing the, the yeah. facility that kind of thing and a support and I, and just supporting the city you know I'm impressed that he sits on this on the uh, front row of the Aces games and yeah. cheers the halftime show. You know, I, I think that means a lot. He's as he's, into that as he's into anything. And this, the thing with the band, the thing with, with his personal involvement, I saw him at the uh, Nevada Ballet Theater Black and White Gala supporting that. And uh, he supports in his presence with his, uh, his heart, but also with his pocketbook. And uh, that's important, too. So we're, um, it's a it's a some victory. I didn't know you were going to Canton. We're gonna have fun. Yeah, I'm emceeing Cliff's party. Okay, I'll it's be a there. big one. Uh-huh. It's one of the it's arguably the biggest in the history of Canton. Most turnout by any player ever, alive or dead. So yeah. for, for former teammates, all because Mark Davis said it's my best friend. We're all in. I, I'm really. This is going to, to be. We're talking really about a lot cool. of a lot of folks who were going to be putting on the show there who weren't working not that long ago, so they're going to make it count. I can and, feel uh, that. We're going to leave it at that because <laughs> I think we'll recap this on my radio show and yeah. talk about who showed up there. Yeah. Thanks for telling us your life story and everything, my friend. Anytime, Thanks for coming. JT, love what you do. And last thing, what does this property mean to you? You know, it's it's uh, the one of the very first places I ever visited in Las Vegas, and uh, I'm behind it. I, I uh, had a chance to talk to Richard Branson when he was here last, and it, it, the personality is great. I love it. We are back live at the inaugural podcast at Virgin Hotels, Las Vegas. I bring in one of my great friends, Michael Morton, who owns one steakhouse here with his brother, the restaurateur, the entrepreneur, and great friend. Thanks for coming in and doing this. Great to be with you, buddy. I want to kind of go back to where it started for you as being the son of a mom and dad who had a really big work ethic. Let's begin with your work ethic in the restaurant world and when you first realized as a kid that you were going to work every day. You know, it was a different time. My dad was a World War II vet. He came in D-Day plus two, which was a really, really uh, difficult thing because the first thing they did was clean up the American bodies off the beaches in France. Um, And it was just, you know, it was the greatest generation. Um, These guys were, you know, particularly my dad. I mean, he was put on this earth to work and he expected that we would work also. I started sweeping floors when, I don't know, I was 10, 11 years old. I uh, worked every weekend when everybody else was having fun, particularly every Sunday because I always worked Sunday brunches. And even all the way through high school and even through college, uh, when I came home, I would be, you know, donning the tuxedo and, you know, in Morton Steakhouse on the floor. So um, 
I've, I've been at this for a long time, JT, and it's just it's just part of who I am. Did you feel like you had to do that out of respect to your mom and dad, or was that part of your DNA because of your mom and dad? You know, um, no, I was expected to do it. I really didn't have a choice, but I really enjoyed it, especially even as such a young person. I like getting a paycheck every two weeks. I really did, and uh, you know that led me led me to even working. While I, for instance, when I was in. Uh, hospitality school at the University of Denver. I worked at a flower shop because they were, you know, a little bit older, and I did the driving and the heavy lifting. And again, I just wanted a paycheck. So, and what what was the first early moment in your career where you saw people coming in, being served, and being treated well? And you said, not only do I have to work, but we have to treat these people the right way so they keep coming back. You know, sometimes when you work um, under you know, a big shadow of somebody like my father's, I, I really didn't get it. I really didn't get it, I think, until I left when I, my father when I was uh, 23-ish. Mm-hmm. And I just said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do my own thing. And, and that's when I, in, uh, in 1990, I opened my first restaurant and bar in the north side of Chicago. And I just, you know what, I wanted to work and work hard, but I also wanted to be, I don't know, you know, it just kind of came naturally to me to be an entrepreneur. When did you know your dad was big? Like, when did you get, get that, seeing all the customers and clients and knowing when he's walking them to the back or having conversations? Give me a story about that. You know, at, at, at a pretty young age, um, my dad was always close with all the mayors of Chicago. And if you know Chicago and what a political beast yeah. it is, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was the founder, uh, creator of Taste of Chicago, which has been, you know, one, one of the great success stories of, of food festivals and, all, you know, and copied, not just around the States, but around the, around the globe. Um, but I knew at a young age because I usually wasn't introduced as Michael Morton. I was introduced as, this is Arnie's son, Michael. Wow. And how'd you handle that? Was that something you were good with always? You were so proud of your dad that, you know, you were going to break out on your own. But what was that like? When did that stop at some point in time and you knew you were going to break away from well, that? You know, I don't know what was the healthiest um, to kind of not really have your own identity. And so I think that was kind of my, you know, kind of rebellion uh, when my dad wanted me to continue and I was working for Morton's. And I did work for Morton's for many years. And I, and I came back from when I graduated from the University of Denver, worked at Morton's and said, you know what? This just isn't for me. This is my dad's place. Uh, I uh, highly respect it. It's their incredible restaurants. But I just felt the calling to go do something on my own. This is really interesting what we have in common. My dad had such a big impact on my life and was so much bigger than me. And he was my coach in Little League. And I knew in back of my mind I was never going to be my dad. My dad was that hero and that guy. And there was a little rebellion. And eventually I looked back on my life where I kind of wanted to go out on my own. Seems like that's a similarity. You knew at some point... This was going to have to be goodbye to dad. Thanks for everything. I have to prove myself. I did. And, uh, you know, I uh, did a private placement memorandum, what's known as a PPM, for this first place I did in Chicago. And I had one, one rule, that my father would not invest in this venture. Wow. No, no funds from him. And something I'm proud of, that I went out there and I did it myself. That, our, that first place, me and two friends that I grew up with, we built it ourselves. Uh, literally by hand, spent very little money, and learned an awful lot about, uh, you know, opening my first venture. Uh, and 
uh, interestingly, you learn more from your mistakes, actually, sure. from the right things you do. And I think that first place, although not really successful, although it had a nice little run, um, really set me up for future success. Michael Morton joins us. So this is really fascinating to me. When was Morton Steakhouse the biggest where you knew it was the biggest, the expansion? And what were you learning behind the scenes of private equity, entrepreneurship, investors coming in? Your dad is this legendary entrepreneur. When did it get so big? That he obviously needed help or he needed assistance. What did you learn about that stage? Well, interestingly, and I, I don't know that I've ever really talked to anybody about this, but my dad, again, kind of being, you know, somebody who was born in the early 20s, you know, living through the Depression, going, going to World War II volunteering, actually played football down at the University of Alabama. Back wow. then, interestingly, they had an A team and a B team at the University of Alabama. So he was on the B team. Nothing wrong um, with that. No, no, incredible. Um, and, you know, but my dad used his own capital. He had no partners. And which is an amazing thing because, you know, of course, you've, you're fully at risk, but you're fully in control. And so my dad always did it his way. It actually, you know, some people have said, well, it's li- it was more limiting when you don't have more capital, uh, you know, on hand. But that just was my dad's style. He was he was very, very controlling. He had his fingerprints on everything. And when he sold the Mortons, there weren't that many Mortons at the time. So, they, but they were all his. So he was the front of the house and back of the house guy. And you've taken a lot of that as we'll get to your career coming up. What was I'm fascinated with our friendship and your music. What did you remember about your dad and the steakhouse and? Chicago and Hef and music and what was happening before it really exploded as a kid. Give me some music memories back then. Well, interestingly, you know, my dad, uh, his first place he opened was called the Walton Walk, which is on Walton and Rush in Chicago, yeah, just off wow. of Walton and Rush. And it was the first key club in Chicago. So it was private membership. And uh, in 1959 uh, or so, uh, there was a guy named Hugh Hefner that came in every night, worked on his magazines every night, and him and my dad really became very close. And it was, uh, it was Hef then who, uh, you know, came after my father and asked him to go work for Playboy, Enterpri- Playboy Enterprises, which he did uh, for the next 15 years. So that was 15-year run. From 1959 Incredible. to 1970, late 73. So, you know, we grew up, we grew up. I, it probably explains a lot of the uh, the weird things about me. I was grew up chasing bunnies, okay, but actually I only wanted the pen light as a as a child. I only wanted that pen light, and they were really dark clubs, but they were very cool lounges, and they had all of the biggest. And what was your age when you went into the clubs for the first time? When you were seeing this world open up in front of you? Well, we would go in the clubs when I was 10 years old and see right. Sammy Davis or when Frank Sinatra was incredible, in Michael. And so they were coming to Chicago, and this was the spot. Yeah, most of the time I spent uh, of the clubs, I spent more time in Lake Geneva than Chicago. Um, really, actually, went to my dad's office in Chicago. Spent a lot of time in Ocho Rios, Jamaica, which was an incredible property. And we actually spent the summers there. Uh, we spent time at the Miami Playboy Club. Uh, a little bit, little bit of time up at the Great Gorge, New Jersey. Sure. Wow. Club and... But it was, it was, you know, it was the 1960s, and 
uh, you know, the sexual revolution um, and, and really have broke so many barriers on, uh, you know, personal freedoms and, you know, people being able to. So what did you learn about your dad then as a businessman expanding his brand from Morton Steakhouse to this connection? Where You must have been sitting back with your brothers going, what is going on here? And we'll get to how that helped you as an entrepreneur. But what, what were some of the early pickups that you saw there as a young businessman? Well, so my, my, you know, when I was very young, but my dad, you know, was, uh, you know, running the play, built all the Playboy clubs and all the hotels. And then when they have decided to go pub, go public, you know, uh, uh, my father said, no, it's not for me. And he left. And that's when he went on in his own. And that's when I really probably really got the true, when I was really starting to understand how talented my father was in, you know, in the business world and specifically in the restaurant world. He was an incredible operator. And if you saw my dad work a room, JT. I wish I he did. He touched every table. He spoke to everybody. He could make anybody laugh. The women loved him. The ladies so loved him. his energy was always on. He was very funny and he was very approachable. And he was just just quite, quite the character and, um, and, and just, um, just the most wonderful ways. Michael Morton is our guest, our inaugural podcast here in the lobby at Virgin Hotel. So when did Vegas come into your life? Where were you? When did you think of Vegas? I know you were here with your friends. You had a road trip in high school or college, but when did you see Vegas as a place where you were going to lay down your flag and make a living? I, I had a concept called Drink Chicago. It was Drink and Eat too, but we called it Drink Chicago. We were interested in opening one in Los Angeles. I went out, my partner Scott DeGraff and I went out and saw my brother Peter in L.A., and we were just turned off. You know, Chicago, you could stay, you know, keep up, stay open until 4 o'clock during the week and 5 on Saturdays. Yeah. And, and 105 and, in L.A. In L.A. Right? Not our scene. And yeah. taxis and no, I mean, no taxis and difficult to get around and a lot of drinking and, you know, the, the concern of drinking and driving, even back then. So my brother was building the Hard Rock Hotel at the time. And he said, come on, I'm going to Vegas. You want to take a trip? And had been here, of course, a number of times before that. But I realized there was no modern nightclubs in las vegas there was a couple old spots that have been around for a while like the shark club and um you know usually when that happens jt that's one that's either a really good opportunity or really not a good opportunity you're guessing is uh you know why aren't it will they not support it and we opened uh we built a building kitty corner to the mgm theme park back in that that time when they were going after that family business and uh we it was amazing. We had a line around the building. It was a big 20,000-square-foot building with four different rooms, restaurant. And little did I know, because I was new to town, that those Caesars limos that I saw and those Mirage limos that I saw, that the executives and the CEOs of those properties are saying, why are my customers leaving? What, what do they have that we don't have? And, of course, shortly thereafter, in, you know, especially in 98, 99, the, the nightclub started appearing in the strip casinos. When did you know a drink when Michael Jordan and Rodman are there and the NBA's flying in on not off days? I'm talking in between games. You could get to Vegas after a game. It's going to stay open, and then you could stay on the West Coast and play basketball two or three days later. Give me one of those moments where you looked around the club and said, this is incredible. Well, Dennis and I were very good friends. Yeah. I did a lot of his birthday parties. We did three of the Bulls championship parties from the 90s. And, you know, you had Dennis and his whole crew and Eddie Vedder and, all, you know, just the whole scene. It was, 
it, it was just an electric time. And the Bulls were, of course, were just to be a Huge. part of that in any, in any way was such an honor. But why were they coming to you? Was there a connection? Obviously, the Chicago connection we talked about. Well, but was it Vegas, the really perfect storm? They really came to storm? Chicago. And then yeah. as soon as they heard about Las Vegas, they all started coming out. Scotty Pippen, I used to be yeah. close with Scotty back in the day. And, and Michael, Michael came to uh, drink Chicago. And there, we get a lot of celebrities and athletes. But when Michael walked in the first time, that was a wow. Oh, man. Yeah. Mike, Especially how great of a team MJ's it was here. in real time. We're talking about the Tyson era. We talked about that earlier. You're sitting here with drink before your next arc, before nine. And you're sitting here watching the city. Did it feel like it was exploding at that time, considering the Rat Pack way before you and coming in? Where was that point for you with seeing the birth of Vegas in this nightclub era? You know what? Um, I, I think 95 was a really big year, and I'm not saying this because it's my brother, but when the Hard Rock Hotel changed this town, because it really was the celebrity magnet. Right. And it had a place that was just kind of just cool. You know, it was just cool. Um, you had all these really good-looking L.A. you know people that were here, not just the celebrities, but just the crowd. And Vegas had never seen anything like that before. It was still more of these traditional big strip properties. And then... Uh, you know, one of the great honors of my life was when uh, George Maloof used to hang yeah. out at Drink. And, uh, you know, as you know, used to own the Sacramento Kings and, and a lot of other things. Uh, you know, just a business titan said, hey, uh, you know, I'm building this place called The Palms. Would you like to do uh, a nightclub there? And ultimately, we were building Nine Steakhouse in Chicago at the time. I said, George, I got a steakhouse that really, I think, feels Vegas, Vegasy. And he came to Chicago with his brothers. Then we did... In the first tower, we did Nine Steakhouse, uh, Rain Nightclub, and we also did in Chicago. We had Ghost Bar on the second floor, and George goes, "Let's do Ghost Bar, but let's put it on the let's put it on the top floor." And then and, Rain, and Rain. So those three places opened in uh, November of 2015, and for the people, and, and of course the moves then built a couple more towers. We did some more venues there as well, but there's still a lot of people I you know see all the time here that said, "Man." You know, from 2003 oh. to 2008 was, was the best five years in Vegas. You know why? Because everything is in one property. The wind wasn't in nightlife. Hakkasan didn't exist. Cosmopolitan wasn't here. So we really owned the city. And it was just, you know, and, you know, to be king of the hill anytime, and I say that humbly, you know, you know you're going to get knocked off at some point. That's just the nature of, of being in that position. And whether you're an athlete or a business person or anything else you do, but that five period was incredible. So with La Cave and all your other restaurants now, what, what came out of nine with the service, front of the house, I was in the back of the house, if it was Chef Barry or there was a bartender in the well or a hostess met me at the door, to me, in the arc of my career, when I was here, and it started at the Hard Rock in the center bar, but then when I discovered nine, it changed everything. John O'Donnell... I'd be at the front, and there would be in the back Rod Stewart having dinner, and then there'd be a boxer, and at the front George Clooney would be with J.O.D., and we, my friends, would walk in, and we'd say, oh, my God, we've never seen any. A Massapequa boy from Long Island who lived in L.A., and then I'm here, and I got everything in that front room, and then when I was seated, I felt like I was a rock star, and then afterwards meeting you coming to the table, then I'd get in an elevator, and I'd go to either Coast Bar or the Playboy Club or Rain. I think that was probably, as you said, one of the great times in the history of Vegas. I, re I really think it was. And, and, but to your point, and I think you're, 
Very accurate. Nine Steakhouse in its heyday. Had something that I've never seen, and I know pretty much every restaurant in this town yeah. today. You, you, it, is, it, it probably will never happen again where everything collided in one place. You had just the, the highest energy, the best food. All the celebrities, when they came to Las Vegas, they came to Nine Steakhouse. They came to the Palms, hands down. We were the place. The most beautiful people I've ever seen in a restaurant. Yeah. I mean, you know the energy that you have. Incredible. Johnny O behind the bar and, and Barry in the kitchen. And, you know, it was just it was just a really, really neat thing. It, it was, was incredible. I want to talk about you as a dad now because you're flourishing. you got kids who are successful. Your wife is one of the great philanthropists in town and globally. So where is your life at now with the restaurant you have here, one steakhouse with your brother, everything you're looking to do next? You're a real big goal-oriented guy. Where are you in your life right now? Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. You know, based on my age right now, I'll be 58 next week. Uh, I've, been, I've been working for almost yeah. 50 years. Um, my children, my youngest, is uh, at this amazing school in Switzerland. Yeah. And my other two are at school. So uh, my, my wife, you know, who is, um, works tireless, tirelessly to help other people, uh, actually left today to go back to Um El Jamal in uh, northern Jordan, about 20 miles mm-hmm. from the Syrian border, where she's been working on an archaeological project there. Then she'll wrap that up in the next couple of years. And so it's something that we're talking about now. I mean, I love what I do. I don't consider, you know, restaurants work. It's really just pure enjoyment. And I think if, if anybody is listening to this that's younger or is trying to get out there and yeah. do something... Do something that you love. Find something that you're really passionate about. And you encourage your kids to do that. I encourage, you know, my sons, I encourage them the same thing. Was that because your mom and dad? I mean, were they, because it sounds like they're old school, old culture, work, work, work. We're going to work seven days a week. But then again, you look at your path with your kids now. You're sending them, hey, let's go see the world. Where did that come from? Well, you know what, for me, when I grew up, and again, you know, it was a different time. And it was expected that I would work in the restaurant and be be in the restaurant and, and hopefully be a restaurateur. I've not done that to my children. If yeah. they, they know if they want to get into the restaurant business, I, I would embrace that. And if they want to do something else, whatever it is that, you know, speaks to them, I'd just be so happy to support them and, and do that. So I told them, don't, don't necessarily study hotel and restaurant management. We can teach you, I can teach you that. Let's wrap it up and talk about this property. There's been challenges because of COVID. We know Boz. I walked this property with you and him with hard hats. I see it now, and we're really behind it. And then there's one steakhouse, which every time I go there, it could be Mark Davis there. It could be another celebrity. It could be a night after a show. What's the difference now when you walk into your property here with your brother and you see your vision and where you want it to be? Tell us about this property. Well, this property is amazing. Yeah. And, and as you know, this used to be the property my brother built before he sold it as the Hard Rock yeah. Hotel and Casino, which Boz bought and rebranded it. Which needed that. It needed to evolve after 25 years or, or whatever it is. And, you know, this, first of all, I did an absolutely amazing job uh, opening this in an incredibly difficult time right. during a pandemic with the closures and the restrictions and, you know, the constant changing of, uh, of rules as, you know, um, I think the government and local, local municipalities are trying to, f- trying to figure this out. So, but the, th- the things I loved about the hard rock, I love about this. I mean, just look at Close, closest to the airport, close to the strip. I like to be just off this yeah. trip. Yeah, I know. And you go do. to the strip when I want to go to the strip. And of right. course, we, we, you know, we live here in town. The rooms here are spectacular. It's a great property. 
but it takes a while when you have a new brand mm-hmm. to build the brand, develop the brand. Boz is constantly making different moves. And uh, we actually spoke this morning. He's, you know, he's got some good, really, really good stuff coming here. And, uh, you know, um, Q4 looks amazing. And yeah. uh, Q123, hard to sit, believe we're, we're talking about that already. You know, and it takes, I always say, two cycles in the convention cycles to really get yourself on the map. Well, so, so, but it's, a, it's an amazing property. It is, it is. And we're all pulling for it because we all came from here. And especially the connection to your brother and your life. Finally... What do you want to do next? I mean, with and I want to really knock it, knock this one out because of everything you've done. Do you feel like you're always being tested by peers and people in the industry, or are you at a place in your life where you feel like you know you're going to do more, but you're going to do it on your time? Well, I know I'm going to do more. Um, and then what I've always tried to figure out is that a that right balance, you know, so I can be present, be home, be a father, right? Um, not not live on the road, you know. Um, I'm, I, I think I've kind of zigged when other people have zagged and, and vice versa. And so, you know, we've got a couple things in development right now. Um, really excited to do a little Italian, a little Italian yeah. joint down in, down in the arts district. I saw we've, the, we've been working I saw on the space. Yeah. That looks cool. And, and we've got a couple other things too we're working on. So, you know, we're just trying to pick the right projects. I don't want to have the most projects. I just want to, want to really do the ones that I feel like, you know, a connection to and that we can do something special. What about travel? I know you got a trip coming here or there. What's the next big travel adventure for Michael Morton? Well, as I said, I'm taking my daughter to Switzerland in a couple weeks, and I've always wanted to go to Prague. So we're gonna go. We're gonna go dart over to Prague, and we may be then heading from there to Munich as well and okay. visiting somebody in Munich. So super excited. Can we? Can you promise me here that we can go to Amsterdam together? You know what? I. You know I've been there probably 30 times. I know. And I've been there once and I can't. And I have to get back immediately. You know, Jenna's father grew up in a little town called Zwierikzee, which is about 40 minutes outside of Amsterdam. So she, she's Dutch. Her dad is truly Dutch. And uh, so we've, we've had a connection to that town for a very, very long time. And it's just, it's just the most wonderful culture there. Pickleball, golf, let's get out there and let's play. Go, let's go do it. Thanks for doing it's this. Really see, appreciate buddy. it. Thank Always you, Michael. Always a pleasure. Appreciate Thanks, JT. It. This is Michael Morton. JT, welcome back to Virgin Hotels. Our inaugural podcast, Chad Brown, joins us. I'm thrilled to talk to him. The Chief Marketing Officer, the CMO of JC Hospitality and Virgin Hotels. Chad, thanks for doing this. Hey, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Tell me about your life. I want to begin because we've been going on this. Let's look back at your life. Before you got here, tell me back, take me back to your boyhood years and what you were dreaming about with music and being a future entrepreneur. Oh, well, JT, I tell you what, uh, I grew up in Las Vegas, moved here from Phoenix when I was very young, and I always knew at a very young age I wanted to be in business. It was always a passion of mine. It's what I went to school for. Uh, I took a couple of different routes uh, through the military and went to five different colleges and have a couple of different degrees, but well, I always gonna get to that in a minute. Go. We're going to go back to that in a minute, <laughs> but you always had a vision where you wanted to be. I did. You know, my father was a chief superintendent for NJD Contracting here in town. They built most of the hotels on the Strip, and as a young boy, when they would do their topping off party, he would actually bring me into the hotel, drive me around in the golf cart, and I, and I tell you what, this is really interesting. He would sit me down at the president's desk, and he would say, someday that's going to be you, son. 
And I always thought, well, I don't know if I'm going to work in the hotels, Dad, but I, I want to work in business. And sure enough, I ended up in the hospitality industry. But The military background, do you remember that? What was, all, what was the earliest oh, yeah. memories of the strictness and being a little bit of a rebel and wondering what you wanted to do in well, that environment? Man, I'll tell you what, I actually went to college first and got my first degree before I went into the service. So I was a little bit older when I went in. I was 22 years old. Mm-hmm. And when I went in, um, you know, the most interesting part, my first memory was I knew what to expect from basic training. My father was in Vietnam. My grandfather was in World War II. Um, and I, had a, I thought I had a really good idea of what the experience was going to be like. But it, uh, it got to me. I, I went through four months of basic training. It was one station unit training. I was a gunner on an M1A1 battle tank. And uh, four months of basic training with the same drill sergeant. Not eight weeks, wow. not 16 weeks. It was four full months in Kentucky at Fort Knox. And I tell you what, I... I thought I knew what I was getting into, but it was tougher than I thought it was going to be. And it's one of the reasons I joined. I wanted that toughness. That's why I joined the Army. Uh, and, it, and it really matured me quite a bit real fast. And my first duty station was overseas in Korea. So I was on the DMZ in Korea for my 13-month first duty station. Incredible. And I'll tell you what, you want to talk about maturing quick. Uh, it was a great experience. Wouldn't take it back for the world. Uh, absolutely loved it. Stayed in for four years. Uh, did really well. Uh, when it was time to get out, I was going out for business. So I, I knew what I wanted to do. And so, so that out. DMZ moment in your life was that pressure? Was that tiredness? Were you staying up? Were you just focused? What, how were you thinking about your path after that when you were completely involved and yeah. focused in one of the most important zones in the world? That's a great question. And I'll tell you what, I was not focused on what I was going to do afterwards. I was laser focused when I was there. We were in training day in and day out. We were wearing full battle rattle every day. We were right up on the DMZ, so our tanks were battle loaded. We would have uh, battle drills uh, probably once a month. They'd wake us up with alarms at about midnight, and we'd run down. We didn't know if it was real or not. Never told us. Um, you know, we had a couple of scares while I was there. Some some crazy things mm-hmm. happening over there. And so when you're there, you're constantly training, constantly. And so my mind was focused on what I was doing there. And it really wasn't until I came back and I got uh, stationed out at Fort Irwin, California at the National Training Center where I had a little bit more time to start thinking about, okay, I've got two more years. What am I, what's my plan? What am I going to do moving forward? Who was in your head back then? Who did you bounce it off to when you're in that type of environment? Who were your mentors? Who were the people in your life saying, yeah, you can do this. You have what it takes to try something new. Yeah, uh, I have to say my roommate. Uh, he was my roommate in basic training. We got sent over to Korea together. We got uh, put in the same unit together. We wow. bunked together in the barracks. And we really gave each other a lot of support. When, when either one needed it, we were there for the other one. And he's, he's a great guy. He lives in Kentucky now. He's actually a mail carrier. Been doing it for years. And such a wonderful gentleman. I stay in touch with him all the time. Fly out there. He flies out here. But at that particular point in time, you know, I had a few sergeants that I really looked up to, and I looked up to them because of their lifestyle, the mm-hmm. way they focused on their family, the way they stayed true. They had integrity. They were making really good decisions in, you know, high-pressure moments, and there were others that didn't. And so I was making mental notes this entire time. I, I've been doing this since probably high school where I've got this mental notebook in my head, and it could be fatherhood. It could be being a supervisor in the workplace. In the military, it was... I would see folks that had rank above me, and I would watch very carefully the decisions they made. And I would make this mental note of, that worked out really well. I see the impact that had. When I get to that level, I need to remember that. Or I'd see the opposite. That was a bad decision. This had a very negative impact. When I get to that level, I need to remember, don't get caught up in the situation. Remember what you just witnessed and make a different decision at that time. Chad Brown's our guest. So what was the big break for you after this now? We decided... 
I got to get it right or I'm going to start this new career? Give me the first few steps when you got out there and started making your bones. Uh, You know, it's interesting because I accidentally ended up back in Vegas. I didn't intend to come back to Las Vegas. Oh, so you were gone. I I was in Fort Irwin, California, getting ready to process out of the military, had a job lined up in Chicago, was accepted into Aurora University, ready to head out there. And unfortunately, I I was going through some marriage issues at the time, and um, we ended up splitting up. Uh, right about three months before I got out. And so uh, I was going through a lot at that time, trying to process not only what was I going to do with the future of my career, but, you know, what's happening in my personal life. And being from Las Vegas, I decided it's probably best for me to come back here for a short period Mm -hmm. of time. I have friends, I have family, I have support here. Great university, UNLV. uh, And I knew I was going back to school again uh, for business. And I know that UNLV is a very reputable school for business. So I thought, you know what, the best decision for me right now I'm going to come back to Las Vegas. And so I came back on spur. I mean, I, it was a last-second decision. Uh, I came back here, and I picked up a job uh, uh, working in a gaming manufacturer doing uh, – this is really interesting. I was doing maintenance on currency handling machines. It's all they had. And they said, you know, we'll bring you on. need a quick job. Well, it turns out I started going to UNLV, and I already had a liberal arts degree, and I was going to UNLV for a marketing degree this company at the time had no marketing. They had no website. They had no sales collateral. So it was really cool because for two years, I got to create their entire marketing platform and I was turning it in as my assignments. And I really, really fell in love with marketing and advertising. And I had a chance to do graphic design work for the Las Vegas Review Journal for a few years. That's really where I got my feet wet Mm -hmm. in advertising. Um, And it it was uh, incidental that uh, I knew the marketing manager at Treasure Island and she had been uh, promoted over to New York, New York. And she gave me a call and said, hey, if, are you interested in working for the casino instead of marketing to the casino? And I said, absolutely. And, of course, I started there. And my career, you know, moved up all through MGM Resorts through the years and now over here at Virgin Hotels. So marketing, I know you're asked this by a lot of people that you mentor. What is your vision of marketing? For kids today who are in their nine, you know, 1920s or in college, they're figuring out what marketing is. They want to get into that. My son goes to college at Oklahoma for sports mm-hmm. marketing. What is marketing today from digital to radio to television to print to what we're seeing outside with these marquees? Yeah, mar- marketing is a whole different world now. And to these younger folks that are coming up and they're interested in marketing, I always advise them to move around a little bit in marketing. Go do some cross training. Talk to some folks that are doing mm-hmm. digital marketing. Talk to some folks that are doing social media marketing. If they'll let you, sit with them for an hour. See what they do. There's email marketing, there's data segmentation, there's analytics, there's you know traditional media and brand marketing. There's so many channels. So when someone comes to me and says, Chad, I'm interested in marketing, what's your recommendation? I said, well, that's a big term. Yeah. Oh, let's stop right there. Yeah, what do you pause. mean by marketing? I mean, we've got casino marketing. We've got player development. There's entertainment marketing. It's, it's so broad. And what I was very fortunate coming up in marketing in this hospitality industry, our non-gaming traditional marketing departments were extremely small back in the two, early 2000s. And so we were doing it all. I came up doing email marketing and data segmentation and online advertising, SEO. I was doing non-gaming special events at the property level with national finals rodeo and mm-hmm. those types of events. So I came up and I learned it all. And it really helped me as I moved up into the executive level of hospitality. So these, the folks that are coming in now, these uh, you know young men and women that are interested in marketing, I tell them, get your foot in the door. You know, it could be a marketing coordinator of some level, but then figure out and try to cross train or sit with other folks and learn about their channel of marketing. One, it'll open up your eyes to how an omni-channel marketing plan comes together. 
because we don't just do television. We don't just do radio. We don't. I mean, we have a very, mm-hmm. very robust marketing plan that involves all different channels. Sure. And how you pull those triggers and how much you invest in each one, it all makes a gigantic difference. What do you love about your team here from uh, the beginning? Because this is COVID. Yeah. This is getting through this. This is getting through construction, taking a brand like the Hard Rock and bringing it into Virgin. Give me some of the takeaways here, the challenges, and what you're excited about going forward. JT, the biggest challenge I've ever had in my entire career was opening a property during COVID. Unseen. I've been through the recession. We've been through some sure. really hard yeah. times. Unfortunate events like October 1st. We've, we've gotten through those. COVID was a whole different animal. And opening a mega resort in Las Vegas right in the middle of COVID. And on top of that, JT, I had to film a national television commercial in the middle of COVID with no asset. I couldn't film the property yet. It was under full construction. Right. And this team that I have here is is one of the best teams. And this is the I boss out in the desert. With. That's the, correct. Wow, yeah, we, wow. we I bought saw, a, I, My son dropped me off today with the bus the right bus. there. Yeah, Absolutely. we bought a 1960 uh, double decker bus that actually ran in the UK on the Piccadilly line. Um, we we refurbished it. We built the inside to look like a casino and a nightclub. Yeah, with a real roulette table, a VIP awesome. table. Uh, you saw the bus. It we you know wrapped the outside, and we actually shot this commercial. And what we were trying to uh, what we were really trying to accomplish was this anticipation of what you were going to experience when you got to Virgin. So it's this group coming in from Southern California. They're in the middle of the desert. There's a, a young lady. We call her Red. She was our lead actress. Um, and she's in the middle of the desert in this beautiful red gown. And the bus pulls up. And what we want to do is represent the property the best we can without showing the property. So she opens the doors of the bus with her mobile app like you would your room key. And it shows the room key on there. And she gets on the bus. And she walks up to the roulette table in the bus, and she puts a bet down, and she hits it, all excited. There's cheering. And then she walks over to the VIP table, the gentleman that's in the back of the bus. She throws some sushi in his mouth, representing the food and beverage that we have on property. He holds up a bottle of champagne and pours her champagne in the red velvet seat so it looks like a nightclub, and that's our Absolutely. nightlife. And we got a rocker chick on the top of the bus just, right. just rocking Jamming. out. Yeah, and that, that's our entertainment, right? This property is all about entertainment, food and beverage, and the amenities that you can, you can enjoy whether you're a hotel guest or you're visiting the property. Wrapping it up with Ch- uh, Chad Brown, one of the things that Boz took me through in the beginning here is I love the concept that if you're a young guy, young gal, young couple in L.A., you can land and get your Wi-Fi going on the airplane. You can check in. You can order food. You have this unique way that people can get into the room and drop your food off. You're checked in and hit the ground running in Vegas. And when Boz walked me through this, Chad, with the hard hat on, I said, Man, I get that. I mean, how many times have we sat here and you look at the vibrancy and people are coming in all the time and they're getting dropped off by Ubers and cabs, but to know that they can hit the ground running at Virgin Hotels. you got a show and you're landing at 620 and the show starts at 8 and you know there's food in your room and you know you're checked in and you're there and you're getting dressed and going right to the theater. Tell me about that because that's a big yeah. part of the marketing that I see going forward. It really is. We're, we're trying to be technology forward yes. in this resort. You know, our, our mobile app is spectacular. You can not only get the food dropped in your room, you can set the temperature you want yeah. it to be when you arrive. I mean, you got digital key. You don't even have to go to the front desk. You can check in on the airplane, get here. You get your key on your device. You get right up to the room. You got your food ordered. You got the room at 74 degrees, wherever you're comfortable with it. Drop your stuff, and you're out and ready to go. It's uh, There's so many things that we do here to try to make it customer-focused. And so... All the stuff we do on the marketing side, these decisions we make on what we're going to implement from a technology perspective, mm-hmm. we, 
always try to look at it from the guest perspective. It's not what's easy for us. It's what makes it easy for the guest. And a lot of folks don't look at it that way, unfortunately, in the hospitality industry. They're looking for ways to make it easier for them. And so that's kind of a motto we have here. How can we make it better and a better experience for the guest who arrives on our property? Finally, my specialty in sports, where do you want the property to be a year from now, two years from now, knowing the success of the Raiders, the Golden Knights, as you know, the Las Vegas Bowl, our friend John Sassenti, everybody that has a piece of their mind and footprint here, and they want to come here for sports. How do you see that with the proximity to UNLV mm-hmm. and Thomas and Mac, but how quickly you can get to T-Mobile, how quickly you can get to Allegiant, and what you want to see here in the next year or two? That's really important to us, and we focus on sports quite a bit. You know, yeah. We partner with the Raiders. We're a sponsor of the Vegas Golden Knights. We work very closely with Coach Arroyo and UNLV football. We're a sponsor of the basketball team. Uh, as you know, I sit on the executive yeah. committee for the Las Vegas Bowl, so we host the Pac-12 team here Which for the bowl huge. game. We're doing pep rallies. We're doing luncheons. It's very important part of this property to be involved in the local community, and there's no better way to do that than to get involved with the local sports organizations here. It's a natural fit. We're a wonderful, we're an upper upscale property, which is great for the brands of the folks who are flying in not only to see these games with away teams, but for home team fans that want to come to after parties. We partner, you know, we do a lot of Raiders parties mm-hmm. uh, in our different sports clubs where uh, we hold official nights viewing parties. Uh, we try to have that footprint and be a part of that. As a matter of fact, we are very, very fortunate to partner with the v- uh, VGK Foundation yeah. at the uh, softball tournament, Battle for Vegas, that they just had. What a success uh, that was. And we again. got to present a $10,000 check from Virgin Hotels Las Vegas uh, to be a part of the Home Run Derby for the Home Run Derby winner to go to a local charity. And so those are really important to us, to be tied into this community, to give back to the community, and partner with these sports agencies that are here that are just a really important part of this community. So as this is a Virgin podcast, as we wrap it up, for those on the outside that haven't been here yet, they're just starting to travel post-COVID, they're coming from all over the world. What's your message to them as the CMO, and what experience do you want them to have when they walk through the doors? The biggest experience we want people to know they're going to have here is everybody's a VIP. We've broken the red velvet ropes. You are important when you arrive. It doesn't matter to me if you're a 26-year-old entrepreneur, if you're a 54-year-old CEO. Everybody that walks in this door is going to be treated with respect. They're going to feel like a VIP, and they're going to have an amazing time here. The amenities we have, the entertainment we have is bar none, the best in the Strip. That's what they can expect when they arrive here. Thanks for doing this. Have a great night tonight. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Chad. All right.